Uh, we looked at what is grace last week. We looked at what is peace. And we started with Jesus giving himself for our sins, which comes from the verse right out of Galatians, which says, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, Galatians 1, 3 through 5, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of God, the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. So we're going to break down this verse. Hopefully we'll, we'll finish it today and maybe can go into lesson number five. Uh, but we're going to really look at this verse as continuing to lay the foundation for Galatians. We looked at Jesus announcing the new covenant to the disciples, Luke twenty-two nineteen through 20. And he took the bread, Jesus, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Matthew 26, 26 through 28 says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, spoke a blessing, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Uh, then he took the cup, gave thanks, gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So he's talking about the new covenant here, and the new covenant finds its first announcement in Jeremiah chapter 31. Uh, verses 33 through 34. And it was a covenant that God gave to the nation of Israel, to the, to the nation of Judah when they were a divided kingdom. And God promised that a new covenant would come to the nation of Israel. The ultimate fulfillment of this covenant, to me, is going to find its ultimate fulfillment at the end of Revelation, when there's no evangelism necessary when you get to the new heaven and the new earth. Everybody living on the new heaven and new earth will know the Lord. Evangelism will not be necessary. We will know him, he will know us, and we will be enjoying eternal fellowship with one another. And so people of Israel were familiar with the old covenant or, or the new covenant promises that were coming. And so when Jesus announces that he's initiating or inaugurating or establishing the new covenant in his blood, I don't know if the disciples quite understood what he was doing at the point in time. Because a lot of things just went right over their heads. And really, until the Holy Spirit came, could they begin to understand spiritual truth. Jesus said to him, he said, I'd love to tell you more, but you, you, just, you just can't grasp it. You, you can't understand it. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. And so it wasn't until later, after the Holy Spirit came, that really the disciples could begin to understand spiritual truth and, and the truth of the new covenant. But what we see here is that as you go through the new covenant, the final part of the new covenant promise that God gave to Israel was that he will remember your sins no more. So that the foundation of the new covenant is forgiveness. That it's really impossible to experience the realities of the new covenant if I'm first not grounded in the foundation of the new covenant. And the foundation of the new covenant is complete, total forgiveness of sins. Where we're confident as believers in Christ that he remembers my sins no more. That he doesn't count my sins against me. 
that all my sins were counted against Christ. So we're, we're then resting in the finality of the full forgiveness that God has given us in Christ. Now, how does a person know that they're resting in the full forgiveness that God has given us in Christ? For me, I began resting the day I stopped asking God to forgive me as a believer. Because as long as I was continually asking for, forgive, for forgiveness, I was living as if God was counting my sins against me and remembering my sins. So rather than resting in the finality of the cross and the final forgiveness for all, sin, for all my sins, I wasn't resting and because I kept asking. When I stopped asking and just started saying, thank you, God, that I'm forgiven, then I started resting. If you come to your house one day and somebody has come, come into it and totally cleaned it top to bottom, washed everything in the house, and you walk in and the yard's been done, and I'm talking about everything's been done. We're not going to ask the person who's done everything to do what they just did. What we're going to do is we're going to say thank you for what you did. And then we can sit down in the home and actually enjoy the home because somebody else did the work that I no longer have to do. But if I keep asking them to do it, then I'm not resting in what they did. Right. So Christ completed. We all agree. We will use the phrase the finished work of Christ, the finished work of Christ, the finished work of Christ. How do I know that I'm living in the finished work of Christ? Because I'm thanking him that I am forgiven rather than asking him to forgive me. Because if I'm asking him to forgive me, then I'm asking him to do what he's already done. God, and he's not going to forgive us because we're already forgiven. It's like the person can't clean the house again because you ask him to clean the house because it's clean. That person who cleaned the house wants you to enjoy the clean house. Well, Christ has cleansed our hearts. He actually has taken residence in our hearts. He's at rest within our hearts. He's made our hearts his home. And the only way he could do it was to cleanse our hearts completely and totally through his blood. That's part of the new covenant we'll look at momentarily. And so when we, when we really believe that, when we really believe the gospel, and the gospel is everything God has done for us, and faith is resting in what he's done. When I really believe the gospel... I will start thanking him for what he's done rather than continually to ask him to do what he's already done. And it will, I promise you, it will move you to a place of spiritual growth that you've never experienced in your life. It'll create energy. It'll create excitement. It'll actually create evangelism within your heart because it's such a great message that I've just got to share it with people. So we're going to look at some of that. Now, this covenant that was made with the nation of Israel, the church, the body of Christ, those who come to faith in Christ, we are beneficiaries of the covenant. We are sharers together in the promises that God made to Israel. So we share in the blessings of the new covenant. Now, it's ultimately going to find its fulfillment completely in the, in the new earth, but it, it's spiritual in nature and we are the recipients of those blessings. We're, we're sharers together in the promises made to Israel, the covenants made to Israel through faith in Christ. So let's look a little bit about the new covenant in the book of Hebrews. That's really the purpose of the book of Hebrews. The, 
the Jewish people were rejecting the new covenant. They were continually wanting to relate to God through the old covenant of law, the Mosaic law. They thought to be right with God, we got to continue to practice the requirements of the law. So the writer of Hebrews is seeking to help the Jewish people, some he's writing to are believers, some aren't believers, it's a mixed crowd, understand that the old covenant is now obsolete. It is finished, it is done, it is no longer in place because Jesus brought it to an end. So worshiping God and relating to God is no longer through the old covenant of law, it now comes through the new covenant. And we're going we're gonna to look at that. So he starts off in Hebrews with a general statement. And the rest of Hebrews is to prove that general statement. It gets very specific on how it happens. It says, After he had provided purification for sins, he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he's saying that Jesus, number one, provided purification for sins. That means complete forgiveness, complete righteousness. We're holy because Jesus has provided purification for sins. He's done the work for us, and he provides us with purification for sins. Faith receives what he's provided. Grace is his provision for the purification for our sins. It's his blood that purifies from all sins, that forgives all sins. Then it says, for he provided purification for sins. After that, he sat down. Why does anybody sit down? Because the work's been done, right? So if Jesus has sat down because the work is finished, then we need to sit down too. And as long as I'm asking Jesus to forgive sins, what I'm asking him to do is, Jesus, I need you to stand up and I need you to come back and die for my sins on the cross again. I need you to go to work on my behalf. Resting by faith, which is what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 3 and 4, the promised land of grace is what he's talking about in 3, 3 and 4. We're resting in what's been provided for us. So we're in a place of appreciation within the new covenant rather than in a place of asking. It's the appreciation that brings transformation. The more we focus on what Christ has done for us and living in appreciation for it, we'll see greater transformation in our hearts, in our relationships, and even in our minds and in our thoughts. It totally brings transformation to us. So he sat down. We'll look at more of this as we move through. Now, Hebrews chapter 9 says Jesus is a mediator of a new covenant. He's the mediator of a new covenant. So a mediator stands between two, two different parties or two different people or two different groups. And the mediator isn't for one group and against the other group. A mediator is for both groups equally and wants to bring both groups together. That's the goal of a mediator to take those that are separated and bring them together as he mediates. So if Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, God is on one side and mankind is on the other side because mankind separated ourselves from God in the Garden of Eden. But through Christ, God reconciled himself to humanity. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5. And now humanity individually can be reconciled to God through faith in Christ. Now for Jesus to be a mediator between God and man, a mediator fully represents both parties or both people. So for Jesus to fully represent God, he has to be God. That's where we get the title Son of God. And for Jesus to be to represent man, he has to be man, 100% man. That's where we get the title Son of Man. Remember, uh, John and, and James were called Sons of Thunder. It means they had, their nature was thunder. Barnabas was called Son of Encouragement. It means his nature was an encouraging nature. So when Jesus is called Son of Man, he has the nature of man. Also called Son of God, he has the nature of God. He is God and he is man. That then enables him to be the mediator between God and man and bring us together. So Hebrews chapter 1 explains that Jesus is the Son of God. So what the author understands is, I'm going to write a letter to show that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant to bring people into relationship with God. I've got to establish that Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. Chapter 1 is he's 100% God. Chapter 2, he's 100% man. So we'll look a little bit at chapter 2 here. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. That's a direct quotation out of the book of Psalms. Okay, see, Mankind was made a little lower than the angels. So in the hierarchy of God's creation, there's, there's the angels and then there's mankind. We fall under the angels. So Jesus was made a little lower than the angels as a man, as a human, now crowned with glory and honor after his death and after his resurrection, because as a man he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, Jesus might taste death for everybody. So the new covenant is, is the grace of God in action, where Jesus has... has died for everybody, that the sins of all humans, all people, all individuals were paid for by Christ. The debt for our sin is death, and Jesus died the death for all. And it's whosoever will can place their faith in Christ, can come to faith and receive what Jesus has done. So let's, ex let's explore this new covenant a little bit more. So the former commandment, that's the law, that's the old covenant of law given to Moses, that's the former commandment, the Ten Commandments, the moral law, the civil law, the ceremonial laws. You find these commandments starting in Exodus 19 when God gave the law to Moses. You find them all the way through Deuteronomy. And then the prophets write about the nation of Israel's inability to keep the, the old covenant. They could not keep the old covenant. That's why they were constantly scattered all over the nations and Babylon was coming in and they, when Jesus was born, Rome had come in. They, they didn't obey the law. So the former commandment, that's the law of Moses, is set aside because it's weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Now, what the writer of Hebrews is trying to help the Jewish people understand is that Jesus brought a better covenant 
founded upon his blood, his death. And he's putting before them, you can relate to God through the blood of Christ or through your behavior under the law of Moses. But your behavior under the law of Moses is no good because that covenant has been set aside. You're wasting your time. And so he's trying to bring them to the blood of Christ and to rest in what Christ did for them on the cross. And so he says this former covenant is set aside, and then it gives the reason God set it aside. Because it's weak and it's useless. Which tells us that the law of Moses, consisting of the Ten Commandments, the civil laws, the moral laws, the ceremonial laws, they're, they're weak. Because it says here, they're weak because the law made nothing perfect. Here's what this means. The law cannot bring you to a place of complete forgiveness of complete righteousness. The law cannot bring you to a place where all your sins are purified and cleansed. We, we find in 1 John that the blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin. All sin for all time. Only the blood of Christ can make us perfect before God without spot, without wrinkle, pure, clean, clean holy, righteous. No law can, whether it's the law of Moses or the law of the denomination I may have went to or the law of the pastor or the law of the small group leader or the law of the Sunday school teacher, put whatever name you want in there. No law, no ritual, no performance, no behavior, no meeting of expectations, no set of disciplines, no commitment. There's nothing we can do that can make us right before God and forgiven by God. Because if there's something we can do, then we don't need Jesus. And that's the whole point of Galatians. That's why Paul writes the book. So the problem isn't the law. The problem is us. So we set aside the first covenant because it's weak and useless, made nothing perfect. And a better hope, talking about the new covenant, is introduced. So Jesus introduced the new covenant to the human race. He introduced this covenant he first introduced it to the disciples in the upper room, and now it, Paul introduced it to the human race in 2 Corinthians 3 when he says, God has made me a minister of the new covenant. So Paul's goal was to introduce the new covenant to the Gentiles. Specifically, your sins are forgiven. The foundation of the covenant. God's not counting your sins against you anymore. He talks about that in 2 Corinthians 3. Through six two. So the former commandment is set aside because it was weak and useless, and a better hope, the new covenant, which has come to us in grace, is introduced, by which we draw near to God. So the way we draw near to God is by there's no effort needed. We don't try to draw near to God. The new covenant draws us to God. The new covenant that God's given us in Christ, where we're confident that all of our sins are forgiven, that draws us to God. It's, that's why it's a better hope. It's better promises. It's, it's much better. And it just draws us to God. It says Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. A covenant is how, how is a person going to relate to God? The old covenant was a, was a conditional covenant. 
It's God related to the nation of Israel based upon their obedience. God said, if you obey, then I will bless. If you disobey, I will, I will curse. He was really trying to protect them so they could shine the light to the Gentiles. So it was the blessings under the Old Covenant were earthly blessings that were dependent upon their obedience to the law of Moses, which they totally disobeyed and were always under the curses. Even when Christ was born, Jesus came to deliver from the curse of the law. That's what Galatians is about also. Um, so the new covenant is better because it's complete in Christ. So that you and I don't relate to God based upon what we do. We relate to God based upon what Christ has done for us. And when you and I relate to God based upon what Christ has done for us, it leads us to a place of rest. Because if he paid it all, and he did it all, then all we have to do now is rest in the, all that he did for us. It's a place of rest. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He's trying to bring these Hebrew people, some believers, some not, to a place of rest. And what I've discovered, when people are resting in Christ, the energy that that produces... Paul's talked about the grace of God that works so powerfully in me. So here's a teacher of the new covenant who's experiencing the power of grace within him. He says, which energizes me and mobilizes me and, and excites me. And so as we rest in Christ, the excitement and the energy and the empowerment that flows from within takes over our lives. It's, it's the Holy Spirit in us taking the new covenant and bringing it to life. And Paul talks more about that in 2 Corinthians 3, and we'll look at that in some later, later teachings. Unlike the high priest of the old covenant, Jesus does not need to offer daily sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Jesus sacrificed for sins once for all when he offered himself. So Jesus offered himself for each of our sins. He lovingly and willingly gave himself for our sins. And he doesn't give himself for our sins on a daily basis, according to Scripture. He gave himself for our sins at one point in time in history for all people and for all sins. He just took it all and he died for the sins of all people. In the Old Covenant, there was the Day of Atonement, right? I think it's Leviticus 16. And what God did was they had a daily sacrifice, sacrificial system for sins. And the Day of Atonement was a day when all the sins that weren't sacrificed for by the nation of Israel, people didn't know about all their sins, the unknown sins, it says. So all the sins that people missed for the year had to be atoned for, had to be covered. God just couldn't let them go. And so once a year at the Day of Atonement, God took all the sins that weren't sacrificed for during that year, they placed them on the animal and sent one out and one stayed, and it was the Day of Atonement when all the, the sins of Israel were paid for. And that was good news for the nation of Israel. For a day. But the bad news is 
God started keeping account of sin the next day, the next moment, the next second. So they could enjoy forgiveness for a moment. But from that point on, God would keep account of sins. Because why was God keeping account of sins? Because he was going to place them on Christ. All the sins were going to be placed upon Christ in full. God's not keeping account of sins anymore because why? Jesus paid our account in full. So here's how I look at it. Going back to a a home illustration. There's always another something to wash. But every now and then, every now and then, all the clothes are washed. And that's, that's a miracle in some houses, right? In most houses. That's a rarity that there's a day when we look around and it's like there's no clothes to wash. That is a wonderful feeling for just a moment. And then we look at wherever hamper we keep the clothes in or whatever basket we keep the dirty clothes in. And I just walked past the basket 30 minutes ago and there were no clothes in it. And I go back to the basket this happens in our house, and I know it happens in yours too, is suddenly it's half full. I'm like, where did these clothes come from? How, how did these clothes get so dirty so quickly? That's life under the old covenant. It's never finished. You can never sit down. You can never rest because it's never done until Jesus washes your clothes forever. It's done. Okay? It's done. He cleanses you of sin forever. So we don't have to keep going back. God, forgive me. God, forgive me. God, I'm sorry. God, cleanse me. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. We're asking him to keep washing the clothes that he's already washed. And what he's wanting to say is, hey, put on, put on the truths of who you are in Christ. Put on your identity. Wear that. You're clean. You're pure. You are forgiven. You are righteous. You are holy. You are perfect. You, there is no spot. Matter of fact, not only did I wash your clothes, but I ironed them and I hung them up for you. Without spot, without, without, without wrinkle. It's done. It's finished. But we, the body of Christ, are so much like the Jews of Hebrews. We just won't rest. They wouldn't rest and neither do we. We keep asking, God, please, please, please. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I'm, I'm going to repent and I'm going to try to do better. And it's, it's just this ongoing failure to rest. But what I've noticed is that the reason the majority of believers aren't resting in Christ is because the majority of Bible teachers aren't resting in Christ. And since the majority of Bible teachers and pastors aren't resting in Christ, then they're not going to share with you and teach you how to rest in Christ because they don't know how to rest. And their fear is if people rest in Christ, it's going to lead to apathy. And in reality, resting in Christ leads to energy. It did in Paul. I've seen it over and over again. It did in my life. I've seen it in other believers who begin to understand this gospel. And the Holy Spirit starts writing the truths of the new covenant on their hearts. The energy and the joy and the excitement that comes from their hearts from the inside out is unbelievable. And so part of what God's ministry for me is, is to lead believers to a place of resting in the finished work of Christ. Is helping people rest in Christ. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. So we want to take the truth from here 
and we want to rest as well. He does not need to offer daily sacrifices. I was told every day you need to keep asking for forgiveness so you can stay in fellowship. I was never told that one day Christ did it all and now you rest in the all that he did. I was daily trying to stay forgiven. I was daily trying to stay in fellowship. I was no different than the Hebrew people. Mentally, I had a legalistic mindset of trying to work for what was free, trying to earn for what was free, trying to maintain what had been provided for me freely. And when I began resting, it, it was just life changing. Hebrews 8, 6 through 12 says, Now, however, however, Jesus has received a much more excellent ministry. What's the excellent ministry that Jesus received? The ministry of the new covenant what we're talking about. He passed that ministry to Paul so that Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 became a minister of the new covenant to people, especially the, the idea of forgiveness. Now, however, Jesus has received a much more excellent ministry just as the covenant he mediates is better, that's the new covenant, and is founded on better promises. The promises of the new covenant are eternal. Everything under the Old Covenant was temporal. And everything under the Old Covenant was external. The better promises of the New Covenant is that everything is eternal and everything's internal. And they last. It's forever. It's a huge difference between the two. For if the first covenant had been without fault, that's the Mosaic Law, that's the, the Law of Moses, no place would have been sought for a second covenant. But God found fault with the people and said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, and it will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers. For I will forgive their iniquities and remember their sins no more. Under the first covenant, God kept account of sins. And the animals covered the payment for that sin until Christ came. Under the new covenant, God doesn't keep an account of sin. It's done. It's finished. It's over. The account was paid by Christ, paid in full on, on the cross for us. So the problem was not with the law. The problem was with the people because their hearts were sinful. When somebody's sick... I had a friend, this was probably in, I want to say, 99, 2000. He was a teacher at Biloxi High School. He was just coughing a little bit, nothing serious that he thought, but he's like, you know what, I'm just going to go get a checkup, just see what's going on. And so they, they, they x-rayed him, they x-rayed his lungs, and, and the x-ray machine showed him that he had stage 4 cancer at 30 years old. Stage 4. The problem wasn't with the x-ray machine. It's good. The problem was what was going on with the cancer in his lungs. It revealed the bad. That's what the author is saying here. The problem isn't the law. The Ten Commandments aren't the problems. The problem's not the law. Paul talks about that in Romans 7, 7 through 25. The problem is the sin in us that the law reveals. So the x-ray machine revealed the cancer in my friend's lungs, but the x-ray machine was powerless to make him perfect. 
powerless to bring healing to him. So the law is powerless, it's weak, it's useless, just like an x-ray machine is to heal the human body. But the x-ray machine can point us to a doctor who can bring healing, hopefully. The law is powerless to deal with the sin in my heart. That's why it's weak and useless in that it can't deal with the sin in my heart. But it points me to one who has already dealt with the cancer in me. Jesus. He paid it in full. He dealt with it. So the law of God is to point us to Christ. Just like a mirror. A mirror can't wash my face or comb my hair. I wouldn't take a mirror off the wall and try to comb my hair with the mirror. I wouldn't take a mirror off the wall and try to wash my face with the mirror because that's, it's, it's weak. It can't do that. that. That's a useless use of the mirror. Well, the law, I can't take the law of Moses or the law of anybody or any anyone and cleanse my heart with a law. The blood of Christ cleanses my heart and he did it once and he did it for all time and he did it for all people. And faith receives this purification. And that's what Jesus told Paul to do. Remember, that's part of the message. Faith, forgiveness, and, and sanctification or purification of sins. For I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In Hebrews 8.13, By speaking of a new covenant, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. But what the author is saying is this, this new covenant makes the old covenant obsolete. It's no good anymore. The old covenant is of no value anymore. The law of Moses is of no value anymore. Any law is, is of no value to change the heart. Think about it. When there's a police officer who has a radar gun, and you and I know that we're speeding, but we know, that we know he's right up there because he normally sits right there. It's a place where I used to live in Van Cleve, Mississippi. And you come around the curve, he would be sitting right there looking at you. So you know you were safe, even though the speed limit was 40. You knew you were safe to drive 55 up until you got to the curve. And then the law kicks in. And the law will change our behavior for a short time but it cannot transform our hearts for a lifetime. That's the law of Moses. For maybe a short time can control people's behavior, but it cannot change people's hearts. That's why another promise in the Old Covenant, or the, the prophets made, was the promise of a new heart, the promise of the Spirit of Christ indwelling us. So our lives are not controlled by a law, but are controlled by the life of Christ and the love of Christ in us. That's where Paul heads in, in the book of Galatians. So by speaking of a new covenant, he's made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. He was just saying, hey, the old covenant at that point in time was in the process of just going away. It had been ended. It had been abolished. It had come to an end. And it was in the process of going away. Now, I love the Andy Griffith show, and I know you guys do too. It's one of my favorite shows. And you remember, Andy always talks by the refrigerator in their kitchen is, is, the, um, is the phone on the wall. And I think the, the um, lady who, what you, the switchboard operator, well, I think her name was Sarah. Is that right? Is it Sarah? And Andy would get on it, Sarah, Sarah, call such and such. All right. 
that phone is obsolete. It's no longer in use because something better came along. What came along was the dial telephone. You know, I remember dialing my grandparents right across the, you know, four, and then it, seven, all the way through. You remember that? You remember that? And, and now that phone's obsolete, right? Because something better came. And then the touch-tone phone came. Boy, that's awesome. It's quick. Just do it. And, and then it, you could even begin putting it on the wall. And then they gave you a huge cord. And my brother would talk for hours and hours and hours with that. I remember that phone on our kitchen wall, stretching all the way down the hallway, going into his room, and he would lay on his bed for hours talking to his girlfriend. And... Um, but then something better came. You guys know what came? The cell phone. And now there are different cell phones that are replacing the first cell phone. So it's, everything's becoming obsolete when something better comes. The old covenant is obsolete. The law of Moses is obsolete. It once had glory. It once had value. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 3. But compared to the new covenant of grace... 2 Corinthians 3 tells us that the old covenant has zero value. It, it, it has no worth to it anymore. Just like the phone that Andy used to dial people has no value compared to the phones that we use today. It's, no, we, we don't see people communicating like that anymore. Well, we don't communicate with God anymore through a law system, through rules and rituals, and through trying and earning and working. We now communicate or relate to God through Jesus because he's the mediator of a new covenant, not me. I'm not trying to get close to God. Jesus made me close to God. I'm not trying to stay forgiven by God. Jesus has given forgiveness to me through his death. We rest. We're resting and we're enjoying the new covenant. Hebrews 9, 12 through 15 says that Jesus did not enter by the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once a year by his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. So there's a comparison that the writer of Hebrews is making between forgiveness under the law of Moses, the old covenant, and forgiveness under the new covenant. He's drawing a, a contrast between the two. When God initiated the law, the old covenant, in Exodus, he told Moses exactly, exactly how to build the tabernacle, which eventually became the temple. He said, you have to do it exactly like this. And then all the furnishings that went into it had to be exact. I mean, the measurements, everything was exact. Outside the tabernacle, they would sacrifice the animals, right? The priests for forgiveness of sins. But the priests could never sit down. They were always on a rotating shift. There was always a priest standing in Israel. Why? Because forgiveness was never final. There was always more forgiveness. Jesus is what the final high priest. And remember what it says? When he provided the final... Jesus was the final high priest. He was the animal that was sacrificed. It was his blood. He was the whole deal. And it said he unlike the other priest, sat down. Now, why did Jesus sit down? Because forgiveness was full, forgiveness was final, forgiveness was forever, 
And we learn from Paul, it's free. It's free. And by faith we receive it. And I know I'm living in the new covenant when I, and I just say thank you. I'm not going to ask you to stand up anymore, Jesus. Actually, I'm going to sit down with you. Now think about what Paul teaches in Ephesians. He says, you have been seated with Christ. Why is God able to seat you with Christ? Because all your sins are forgiven. Because God sees it as finished in your life. He knows who you are in Christ. And he now has sat you with Christ in the heavenlies. You have been seated. You've got to see yourself seated with Christ. We begin to see ourselves seated with Christ. We will live in the joy of forgiveness for the rest of our lives because we will understand that I can't be seated with Christ if I'm trying to get forgiveness. I'm asking him to unseat himself and come back down here and die for sins. And he's not going to do that. And he's saying, hey, Brad, I'm not going to do that. I got, good, I got better news for you. You've been seated up here with me. And just rest. Enjoy the forgiveness. Enjoy the purification. Enjoy the gift of righteousness. And we, we rest in what he's done. The priest would take the blood of the animal that was sacrificed for the sins of the people, and he would go into the holy place, and he would sprinkle blood, and then he'd go into the most holy place, which was behind the curtain, and he would sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant that contained the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ark in Hebrew means coffin. That's another. So sometimes when you see the word Ark, it means coffin. So the Ark of the Covenant is a coffin. The coffin of the covenant in Hebrew is what it means. The coffin of the covenant. Because the Ten Commandments produce what? Death. They kill us. It, it, the law is good, but when it flows through me, it, it kills me. Electricity is good, but if it flows through me, it kills me. The law kills us, and it puts us to death. And so the, the Ten Commandments were stored in a coffin because the Ten Commandments bring death. That's why the man asked in, in Romans 7.25, Oh, what wretched man I am, who would deliver me from this body of death, this coffin of death? Thanks be to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus went to the coffin for us. And then he rose to life and we've been made alive with Christ because our sins are forgiven and we've been seated with Christ because our sins are forgiven. If my sins aren't forgiven, I can't be made alive with Christ because one unforgiven sin brings death. And the reason you and I have been eternally made alive with Christ is we've been eternally forgiven and eternally seated with Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the transforming power of the gospel. And so... Jesus did not enter the most holy place by the blood of goats and calves. Jesus entered the most holy place. He's talking about heaven itself. Once for all, by his blood, he willingly sacrificed for us. He gave himself for our sins. Thus, securing, and here's the key, eternal redemption. See, everything under the law of Moses was temporal. Nothing was eternal. But Jesus secured for you, he locked it up. He secured for you eternal forgiveness. That's what redemption means. Paul talks about it in Ephesians 1, 6 through 8. He says, 
redemption the forgiveness of sins. Redemption is the forgiveness of sins. Your sins have been eternally redeemed. Your sins have been eternally forgiven. That's the good news. When we live in this place of appreciation for forgiveness, I'm now living as a person who now understands that my sins have been eternally redeemed, eternally forgiven. Because if I'm asking God to forgive me, I still think forgiveness is temporary. Right? I'm, I'm not a Jew living under the law, but I've created another law as a Gentile that I'm now living under that says I still forgiveness is temporary until I ask. I'm no different than, than the unbelieving Jew of Hebrews, even though I'm a believer in Christ. So the writer saying, rest, rest in Christ. It's eternally paid for and it's eternal forgiveness. For if the blood of bulls and goats, the blood of goats and bulls, and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so their bodies are clean. The Mosaic law is an external cleansing. How much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God without sin, purify our consciences from works of death so that we may serve the living God. Therefore, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. You see where the the blood of Christ goes to? The blood of animals cleanses a person externally within the community of Israel. The blood of Christ cleanses the heart of people internally. It touches the conscience. Okay, now think about the conscience for a minute. It's where shame lives. It's where guilt lives. It's where regret lives. It's where things we've done in our lives that we look back on, that we're ashamed of having done them. And we feel the guilt, we feel the shame, we feel the regret. The blood of Christ cleanses the conscience. When we get what Paul is saying here, or the writer of Hebrews, when we get the the complete purifying work of Christ on the cross, when we understand He counts our sins against us no more. I am holy and I am righteous because of Christ. And we begin concentrating on what Jesus really did for us at the cross. We sing about it a lot, but we've got to move from singing about it to concentrating on what really happened. And then as we concentrate on what really happened, as we sing about it, it will have an even greater impact on us. So as you and I concentrate on the fact that we're forgiven and righteous and holy, the shame will begin to leave. The guilt will begin to leave. The regrets will begin to leave because the blood of Christ cleanses the conscience. Works cannot do it. Effort cannot do it. Behavior cannot do it. Religious activity cannot do it. Trying to do better can't can't cleanse the heart. But the blood of Christ, when the Holy Spirit writes these truths in our hearts, cleanses our hearts. And then the next verse, nor did he, Jesus, enter heaven to offer himself again and again. Jesus is not trying to secure ongoing forgiveness like the old covenant. He's not going to God again and again saying, okay, Brad just asked asked me uh, to forgive him on earth for something he did. So I'm going to run to the Father and say, Father, will you forgive Brad? He's not doing that at all. He's sitting beside the Father so that when Satan accuses us, he can say, no, he's forgiven. He's forgiven. He's forgiven. He's righteous. He's holy. He's forgiven. Okay. Nor did 
he enter to offer himself again and again as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Here's what he's saying. If there's more forgiveness to be granted to us when we ask, Jesus would have to come down and die every time somebody says, please forgive me. Think about all the believers in churches all over the world who aren't resting in the new covenant because their pastor isn't resting and they're still trying to get forgiven and stay forgiven. How many prayers go up to God from believers every day? Please forgive me, please forgive me, please forgive me. Billions. If God granted that request, which he can't because it's, it's been paid for in full, but if it wasn't paid for in full, every time Jesus, please forgive me, Jesus would have to step out of heaven, get up, and come down and die on the cross again. So he would be dying billions of times every day. The nails would be driven into his hands billions of times every day. The whipping, the beating, over and over, repeatedly, over and over, if he, if he had to grant more forgiveness. But God is, God is not granting more forgiveness because he gave complete forgiveness in Christ. The heart of God is that we grasp, by faith, the forgiveness that he granted by grace and we believe it, and we rest in it. That's the beauty of what Christ has done for us. But now Jesus has appeared once. Why? Because all sins were paid for. For all people, at the end of the ages, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is appointed to die once, and after that to face judgment, so also Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting. So, when Jesus died on the cross, here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. That Jesus took his blood, and he, he went to the Father in the real holy place. In the real holy of holies. Heaven itself. The very presence of God. And so Jesus took his blood, and, and, and everything we see in Exodus is only a model of what really happened in, in heaven itself. And Jesus was the priest, and Jesus was the animal, and it was his blood, and he goes to the Father in heaven, and, and he, says, he says, this is my blood given for John. Right. This is my blood given for Barbara. And you're right. Linda, this is my blood given for Linda. And every person in here, this is my blood given for Brad, for eternal redemption. That's grace. Our response to that is faith. That's why the writer of Hebrews writes Hebrews 12. What the writer of Hebrews 12 is doing, or 11, I'm sorry, 11, the, the, the chapter of faith, is this idea to the Jewish mind that works earn nothing with God. We merit nothing with God. This life of faith, Paul uses the word faith 19 times in Galatians. He's trying to move people to faith, and faith is in the finished work of Christ. So he's trying to teach the Hebrew people that I know this idea of faith 
And resting by faith, which he talked about in Hebrews 3 and 4, is a difficult concept for you to understand. It's a difficult spiritual reality because your whole life you haven't been living by faith. You've been living by the works of the law. And Paul comes and says, it's faith and faith alone, apart from works. And so the reason he writes Hebrews 11 is to seek to convince his Jewish audience that this weird idea that he's promoting is not such a weird idea. Because Abraham lived by faith. And Moses lived by faith. And he gives a history of people living by faith, Jewish people. So he's trying to say, hey, it's kind of like the cereal, you know, and nobody would try the cereal. And finally, Mikey eats the cereal. And if Mikey is a guy that everybody respects, well, if Mikey likes the cereal, then hey, I'm going to try the cereal too, you know? Well, if Abraham lived by faith, then faith's not such a strange thing. If Moses was a man of faith, then this idea of faith is not such a strange thing. That's why Hebrews 11 is written. It's written to, to try to convince the Jewish people and us as well, as readers of it, the Spirit of God will take that truth to say, hey, rest by faith. Rest in what Christ has done for us. It says, for the law is only a shadow of the good things to come, not the realities themselves. The law is like a picture. So if you ever had a loved one that was away for a long time, and you looked at their picture like a maybe a grandson or granddaughter or a son or daughter that went off to war or a husband or wife that was, that was gone out for a while. And, you know, now we can communicate through, through media, but back in the day, it was the best we had was a picture. The Old Testament is just a bunch of pictures. They're not reality. They all point to the person of Christ. The reality is Jesus. The animal being sacrificed is a picture. The blood of the animal is a picture. The high priest is a picture. The tabernacle is a picture. They're all pictures. But the reality is Jesus himself. What if you've been waiting on that loved one to come home? And you've been looking at that picture for six months to a year. And you you know these surprise when people come home from overseas and they're at the gym and they're doing a pep rally and the kid's right there, you know, and they've got the kid out front and they're enjoying the pep rally and all of a sudden somebody sneaks up right behind the kid and taps the kid on the shoulder and the kid turns around and it's mom or dad in army fatigues. The real person is now shown up. What if the child said, you know what? Hmm, I'm just going to look at the picture the rest of my life. No, they're going to throw the picture down and they're going to hug the person and the person's going to hug them. That's what Paul's trying to do in Hebrews. He's trying to tell them the old covenant is done because it's pictures. And why is it pictures? It's pictures of who? Of Jesus. So he's saying, lay down your pictures and be embraced by the love of Christ that he's given himself for us. He's purchased for us forgiveness and relationship now. It's the real person. So the Spirit of Christ would say the same thing to us today. Lay down your rituals of trying to get forgiveness. Lay down your 
you're seeking forgiveness. Lay down the pictures. Lay, lay down the rules. Lay down the works. Lay down the efforts. Lay down the trying because he did it all. And allow him to embrace you with forgiveness. Receive the reality of what he did. And it's so, trans, so transforming. Um, for the law is only a shadow of the good things to come, not the realities themselves. The law can never by the same sacrifices offered year after year or day after day, make perfect those who draw near to worship or in relationship with God. If the law could, would not the offerings under the law ceased? For the worshiper would have been cleansed once for all under the law and would no longer have felt guilt for their sins, that the blood of Christ cleanses us from what the law couldn't. Instead, those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. Every time I ask God to forgive me, it's, an, it's a daily reminder to myself that I'm not forgiven when in reality I'm forgiven, right? Every time I say, God, forgive me, I'm reminding myself that I'm not forgiven and I'm telling myself that the work of Christ wasn't sufficient. So I'm rather living by faith in the finished work of Christ. I'm reminding myself that, and that I'm not really forgiven when in reality I really am. I'm just lying to myself because the truth is I am. The law was a bunch of daily and yearly reminders of guilt. What the Holy Spirit wants to remind you of is you're forgiven. You're righteous. You're holy. He writes these truths on our, on our hearts. Those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering God you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you took no delight. Then I said, here I am, Jesus saying this, it is written about me in the scroll, that's the Jewish scriptures, I have come to do your will, O God. In the passages above, he says, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor did you delight in them, although they are offered according to the law. Then he adds, here I am, I have come to do your will. And here's the will of God. Sometimes we ask, God, what's your will for my life? What's your will? What's your will? The will of God is for you to rest in the blood of Christ. That's the will of God for your life. And once you and I are resting in the blood of Christ for forgiveness of sins, then the reality of what he wants to do in and through you, he'll just, he'll just work it out. See, I'm, I'm not here because... Somehow Becky and I decided to move to Johnson City because we didn't. He, he did it all. I'm, I'm not even on staff because I planned it or I made it happen or I put forth effort. It was just, God, I'm just going to rest in you. I'm going to rest in you. You direct my steps. You guide my conversations. You bring me to where you want me to be. You put me to where you want me to be. But until that time comes, I'm still going to thank you every day that I'm forgiven. I'm still going to rest that I'm forgiven. I'm still going to rest in your will for my life. And your will is that I rest in his blood, which means I'm resting in his forgiveness and his righteousness. There's so much more to the gospel. And once I'm resting in his blood, then we can experience the rest of the gospel, which will come through the book of Galatians. We'll see that later. 
Then he adds, here I am, I've come to do your will. He takes away the first covenant to establish the second. So God's established the second covenant. And by that will or that testament or that covenant, we have been sanctified, made holy, made pure, pure, clean, forgiven through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all. And then he adds, their sins and lawless acts, I will remember no more. And then the writer of Hebrews sums it all up. Hebrews 10, 17 or 18 says, And where these have been forgiven, an offering for sin is no longer needed or forgiveness is no longer needed. See, your sins have been forgiven. That's why we don't have to ask anymore. We accept this forgiveness by placing our faith in Christ and then we live forever in the fullness of forgiveness through appreciation. I had to start living by faith in this truth in 1990 because when I was first presented with this truth, my emotions were tied to what I, the lies I had been telling myself for years. And the lie that I had been telling myself for years was that, Brad, you have to daily ask God to forgive you. And every time you sin, you have to ask for forgiveness. I was lying to myself because I hadn't put on the belt of truth. And Satan was having a field day with that. Keeping me in shame. Keeping me in guilt. All right. So emotionally, when I learned this truth and the Holy Spirit through Scripture and through other Bible teachers began to help me see this, emotionally, I still wanted to ask for forgiveness. Emotionally. But biblically, I knew it was wrong. Intellectually, I, I knew asking for forgiveness was not biblical. Emotionally, my, my emotions were still tied to the lie. So by faith, I had to say, God, I'm never going to ask you to forgive me again as a believer in Christ. By faith, I choose to believe that I am forgiven. I have, I've accepted your forgiveness and I'm going to live in appreciation for your forgiveness the rest of my life. And I started in 1990 living by faith in the finished work of Christ. And here I am now, 2019. That's been, that's been 10, what, 30 years ago. Emotionally, for me to ask for forgiveness doesn't even feel right. Emotionally, for me to thank God I'm forgiven feels perfectly right. Because now my emotions are aligned with truth. God has spoken to us through His Word. And the book of Hebrews says that the blood of Christ speaks a better word. And the blood of Christ speaks this. You are forgiven. You are holy. You are righteous. You are perfect. You without spot. You are without wrinkle. That's what the blood of Christ is saying. But then there are other words over here on this other side that I've heard from many people. Nice people, sincere people, loving people, but just not biblically accurate. And so, for me, I had a crisis of faith. Am I going to believe the words of those I've been listening to for for, for a small, thankfully for a small amount of time as a believer? 
or am I going to believe the Word of God which speaks a better word through the blood of Christ? And by faith, it was, I'm going to believe that God, you're not counting my sins against me. There's no sacrifice for sins left. And that I am eternally redeemed. I'm eternally forgiven. I'm holy and I'm righteous. And I'm going to spend the rest of my life in appreciation for what Christ has done for me.